Jeff, it is Christmas Eve, but you are currently without a voice of sorts. It sounds mm. as if you are using some voice changing thing, like on a crime show. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're interviewing a witness who doesn't want their identity revealed. But yeah. you are you. I can I, verify that. I am. I, I am me. And I actually feel just fine. I just sound not so fine. And here we are. But you do feel better than a man who passed away after three consecutive car accidents on I-5 near Lake Samish in Bellingham, Washington. I didn't know he died. When you you told me this is what we were going to do, I was laughing because I thought it was a funny story. You didn't tell me he died. It's, you know, it is a good segue. This is going to be, it is Christmas Eve when we are recording, but this is going to be our Festivus episode because I know you love Seinfeld. But so anyway, this man, he... Um, he was involved in three consecutive car accidents. So he rolled his car on his own. Like it was a solo accident car rolled as he, he was climbing out of the overturned vehicle. And as soon as he climbed out of the vehicle, his car, someone else who was driving, this was at like 6am hit him. So then he rolled in his car and then he got hit standing outside of his car. And then an ambulance comes and then they load him into the ambulance and that ambulance got in a wreck on the way to the hospital. So they had to call another ambulance and then moved him to the second ambulance. But then he was pronounced dead at the hospital when he arrived. So I think it was, it wasn't the third accident that the, it was ultimately passed away because he got hit by like someone going around, a, like he got hit by a full speed, a car going full speed on the road. And that's never going to work out well for you. But imagine it, that is like, if there was ever a man, it was really your time to go. I think that's got to be it. That has to be. How sad. I didn't know that he died. I mean, I probably should assume, like should have assumed once you told me he got hit by a car three times, but, but still sad. It was sad. And it is, it is going to be our airing of grievance episode today. And are you a Seinfeld fan? Um. Yes and no. So it's like, I've seen all of, like the major, like the soup Nazi, the Festivus, you know, like all of the main yeah. jokes, like I get them and I've seen those references, but I have not watched the entire series. And, gotcha. and maybe I should. Well, you should. My, my wife had never seen it either. Uh, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. I had the DVDs. Like I was, I was a big, big Seinfeld guy and I made my wife finally watch it. Um, she couldn't watch it when it was on Hulu. I don't know why. So now that it's on Netflix, she was on board. So whatever. What an elitist. (laughs) We watched it recently and uh, she loved it. Like there's no story, you know, like there's, there's running sitcom about nothing, right? It is the whole point. It is. And people, oh man, you know, people who don't like it. I I really believe that nobody doesn't like it. There are people who, who refuse to admit that it's the best and that's fine. I can get on board with that. But nobody doesn't like it. Are is this show the Seinfeld of sports podcasts? Like it's a show about nothing. Everyone who listens to it likes it, and yeah. our running, our running trope, if you will, is that we occasionally talk about BYU sports. But uh, yeah. really, this whole thing is about nothing. I think that's fair. I do. I think that's probably fair. We we don't have as much talk about sex. There's a lot of sex talk at Seinfeld. There's something like, I, I can't remember the number, but it's like hundreds, not hundreds. I think it's a hundred different girls that Jerry dates throughout the series. And it makes it look like he's just like this player dude. Right. But like he was married for most of the show. He's a family guy, but it's relatable. So even all these years later, it's been off the air now for what, 25 years almost. And it's still relatable the jokes uh, you don't catch them all like the younger generation isn't going to get the pop culture jokes that came out at the time but the the premise of the show is still relatable the principles that it teaches us are still true today yes it's yeah july 5th 1989 to may 14th 1998 yeah so nearly 25 years 24 years almost and it's still good. And Festivus, for those of you who don't know, which I think everybody does, Frank Costanza, George's dad, one of the best characters, Jerry Stiller, rest in peace. Uh, he creates his own holiday called Festivus. 
Then there's a series of different events that happen with Festivus. There's a Festivus pole. There are feats of strength. One of the things that Festivus uh, entails in the Costanza household is the airing of grievances, where really Frank just tells everybody all of his problems with them. And the, the famous line is, it's time for the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. And that's that's what it is. And I got a lot of problems. And I really do. I mean, I have a lot of life problems. It's Christmas Eve. I work at a bank, right? Like banker hours are a thing. People mock bankers for not working. <laughs> but we do work on Christmas. I'm coughing because of my Frank, my Frank impression. Uh, we do work on Christmas Eve and it kind of sucks and everything has been, it's been a challenging week. This is supposed to be the coast week, but a lot of things have been broken. And so I've got a really short temper today. My, my voice is gone and everything's been broken at work. I'm at work. I mean, obviously not working really hard as we sit here at noon on Christmas Eve and I'm, I'm, we're recording but still here, still paying attention to work. And that is a problem. And that's that's going to make the airing of grievances maybe a little bit more harsh. My first thing that is just irritating me that needs to be said, I need everybody. Now, the, the root cause of this is because of our, our Cougar Sports Insider message board, but it's on Cougar board. It's on Twitter. It's, it's on our Discord, sir. It's everywhere. Stop conflating talent evaluation issues with roster management problems. If you don't believe that the defensive tackle position is strong enough to compete and win games next year, that's fine. I don't care. But BYU is not in a position that they can just cut people. They can't. And they also can't just go out into the transfer portal and add a whole bunch of bodies. They can't do that. They are at, and they're actually over their scholarship limit if, if the season started today. They'll be fine by the time fall rolls around, but going into winter, they're going to have a few extra scholarships. The problem is not that BYU can't add bodies. The problem is that the bodies who are currently in the defensive tackle room, if you believe that they're insufficient, then they're not capable of winning games next year, it's a talent evaluation problem, not a roster management problem. The problem is that there are 10 guys who will be on scholarship next year who play defensive tackle. And if, if those 10 guys aren't going to you know, cut the buck, they're not going to be able to, to, to win games. That isn't a problem that there are 10 guys. If there were 10 guys who were good, nobody would be questioning the defensive tackles. Nobody would be questioning the, the roster management. The problem is not that BYU can't go get somebody. The problem is that BYU's got 10 somebodies that are maybe not where they should be. That's yeah. my first problem. And you can't, I mean, you can't just wholesale cut everyone. And this is why the evaluation is so important. And it's, I mean, they are tied together, but the evaluation is so important because you can't, it's just a bad precedent if you just go cut wholesale, cut everybody. And also the valuation is so important because once you're in the big 12, cutting people is not an option. It's not. And it, like it, really... it is, it is. And that's not a big 12 thing. Like that is part of being like a, in 2015, the autonomous five conferences voted to guarantee four year scholarships. So right. if you take a commitment from a player who has played one year of football or played at an eight man school, or you think is a project you are committing to them for at least four years. And maybe if you go on missions, right? Like if you push a kid on a mission, it buys you some more time. You can cut them late. Like, you know, BYU will have a little more wiggle room because of missions than most right. schools do, but it's not, you can't just say, Oh, well, we're just going to go find 15 tackles in the portal and who are necessarily better, right? Like we saw before the bowl game and we've been saying, oh, we need to get a transfer portal running back. And we kind of got one because Lopini Katoa said he's going to come back next year. 
And I think that's good. I think that's better than going and get a, a portal because like the last time we went and got two running backs out of the portal, we got Emmanuel Suka and Tyson Williams and Tyson was awesome for the four games before he got hurt. And soup was a bust, right? Like he, we thought he was going to be good based on what he did at rice and he did nothing for us. And, and, and let's not, let's not forget Devonta Henry Cole, right? Oh, so, and I, well, because he never even played it down. So right. About him. So, so, so far, BYU's gone to the portal for three running backs, and they've got four games out of those three running backs. That injury is not Tyson's fault. Tyson was great. BYU doesn't beat Tennessee, probably doesn't beat USC without Tyson. Like, so that's, that's, I great. mean, Tyson would have had, he would have gotten drafted like the way he was playing. He oh, was yeah. going to have an incredible, one of the all time great seasons for most memorable seasons for BYU without question. But that's, that's kind of the, like a good illustration of how important the talent evaluation is. It's hard. It's really hard. And the fact that BYU could bring in two different running backs that year was good roster management. Like that got them in a situation where they had the flexibility to do that. Evaluation's the critical thing here. If BYU was in a situation that like they were a couple of years ago where they were going into the off season. And if you projected things out, they had like 98 scholarships. That's bad roster management. And that happened a couple of years ago. Right. But the goal of roster management isn't so that you can add talent down the road. The goal of roster management is to appropriately allocate scholarships around to the team so that the coaches can go and fill spots as they see necessary. And they've done that. The roster management is not the problem. If you feel defensive tackles are not good going into 2022, it's because, uh, it's, it's, it's the talent. It's the evaluation. It's the recruiting. It's not the roster. The roster's fine. The roster's got 10 freaking scholarships. If you can't find three or four that are really good out of 10, you got problems somewhere else, but not roster management. Also next grievance scholarship limits exist guys deal with it. We can't just go out and add a hundred people to the, out of the portal. There are scholarship limits and rules. APR is a rule, the academic progress rate. When BYU cuts guys or when guys leave because of honor code issues or whatever other issue, BYU gets punished. Their APR score takes a hit. Guys like Ula Tolotau who leave and don't play football anywhere else, that hurts BYU's APR score for multiple years. That happens all the time BYU that happens more than any other school there are guys that transfer out of everywhere right everywhere right but at BYU they also have to account for the regular transfers that happen out of everywhere and any honor code issues or any academic issues BYU has a few more requirements that make it a a little bit more difficult than than at another school BYU's APR score is not good it's not good it's not catastrophic. You know, they could lose two or three guys because of transfer or whatever else and still be fine. But that's the buffer, right? Two or three, four guys maybe is the buffer. They can't lose 10. So BYU can't just go cut everybody because APR gets in the way. They also can't just go and add everybody because scholarship limits get in the way. And also Kalani Satake He can't just go and recruit himself. That's another thing that I'm going to, this is going to be a bad show for me. There are rules that limit how much contact a head coach can have with players. Like this idea that Kalani needs to be in the house of everybody multiple times a cycle. That's against the rules. He gets one visit. He can do one in-home visit and he can talk to dudes on campus. The recruiting efforts have to be done at the coordinator and the position coach level. The head coach is a closer. So anybody who suggests that Kalani needs to be more involved with the, the spring evaluation beat that, that they're, you're wrong. He can't be, that's not his job. And there's a re right. There's rules of why you can't have that many 
because they're it's the same reason that you have a scholarship limit like they're trying to somewhat equal the playing field as stupid right as that is and it's not really going to happen um but it's you just can't and i think a lot of people just don't understand because you don't follow it enough um and to understand what's going on and it, it's don't really like if you don't follow recruiting enough like you think of when you see Kalani do an in-home it's like oh this is a big deal so like that we're putting a lot of effort into that player when it's most players get an in-home from the head coach because that's the closer and you get your that's one your single, one time yeah. you get one time you can't just say oh come by i'll tell me you know that's why it's it's one of the reasons in-state recruiting is really good because if someone is close to campus, you can get them on an unlimited number of unofficial visits and they can sit down in Kalani's office with him if they drive themselves over there. So that's why as the state of Utah grows, as the quality of high school football increases in the state, and then that will be better for BYU because you know you can get more of those kids. Obviously, it, it it's easier and it should be easier no matter what school you are the bedrock of recruiting has to come from getting the most talented players around your school, because those are the ones that you can get the most time with. And so if you're losing out on those guys, then that's where you can, that's when you run into big problems with overall talent, because you're trying to go against now you're committing in, We saw this at Virginia, right. With Bronco, like they didn't do very well recruiting in Virginia in the DMV where players could come sit down and talk to them whenever they wanted to, you know, drive a couple hours, and so then they're having, they're going out and they are trying to go in homes and get into doors across the country with people. And those players, local schools are getting them on campus and talking to them multiple times. And so you're fighting an uphill battle where you just don't have the amount of face-to-face contact anytime you go away from campus to recruit somebody. All the time. There are so many nuances to the recruiting world that I, I, because coaches can't talk about it and because sites like rivals and on three and 24 seven are behind a paywall, they just don't get noticed, but there are, there are consequences for, for nearly every decision that is made. Like there are in the rest of life. Right. Um, and these rules that are in place, they're complex and it's tricky and there are dead periods and quiet periods and, and, and they all mean different things. There's evaluation periods, there's visit periods, all of this stuff, all of this nuance, it impacts what BYU can and cannot do. There are limits to how many phone calls you can make versus how many text messages you can send. And there are definitions that define the difference between a Twitter DM and a text. Coaches can like something on Twitter, but they can't retweet or they can't reply to something on Twitter. They can retweet. Like all of this stuff, there's just so many rules that the general populace that doesn't know about and that I don't know about. And I follow recruiting probably as close or closer than anybody who is not in the recruiting office. It's just complex. And there are consequences. Cutting people, cutting scholarships loose. Like sometimes that's the right call, but sometimes the consequences of that are, are too great. There was a player once... Um, I can't even say where he's from because it would be a giveaway. And I don't want to do that, but this is several years ago. And he was brought in and it was kind of a, a, a questionable thing. It was, it was confusing why he was brought in. And lo and behold, I learned later on from a very influential family, very influential booster family who was very, very connected to the program and to their neighborhood that was also full of affluent BYU fans cutting that person loose because they were a fringe player would have had huge, huge ramifications for the football team's ability to raise money. Like all of the, there are consequences everywhere. And that it all goes back to the talent evaluation. If you don't think a kid's going to turn out, then you can't give them a scholarship and you can deal with that fight. But as soon as you accept a commitment, you, you, there's consequences for p- cutting that kid loose and BYU's ability to absorb those consequences is different than USC's or Alabama's or anybody else's ability to absorb those consequences. 
So all of this stuff, there's lots of consequences. There's lots of nuance on the recruiting trail, lots of nuance with the roster management. And all of this, we, we, we talk about this like we are the authority figures. At the end of the day, the coaches see what they see. And if you don't like what they see or what they see turns out to be a failure, it's a coaching problem, not a problem on, on any one individual recruit, right? What is, a, what is a recruit supposed to do? Like, let's go back. Let's, let's talk like Seth Willis or Bruce Mitchell. Those were guys in, in classes in the past that people questioned. They haven't yet started their careers. I think Seth was on the roster this year, and I think Bruce joins the roster in January. But people questioned those offers because nobody else was really recruiting them. They were projects. They looked a little bit slow on tape at times, like whatever, right? Uh, we can talk about those guys and be like, hey, I don't know. I don't know. This seems like a problem. I don't know. Talk about what it means for the roster and the future and all that stuff. At the end of the day, the coaches think that, that those players are going to be good. They didn't just offer them a scholarship for funsies. Right. They offered him a scholarship because they think they're going to be good. And the kid accepted it. Like, what's the kid supposed to do? It's his dream school. You know, it's not the kid's fault. And if they turn out to be great, then the coaches were right. If they turn out to be a flop, then sure. Like we can sit here and pound our chests and say that we were right. But at the end of the day, it's not the kid's problem. You know what I mean? Like there's something there. That's a grievance, a grievance that I've had. Also, Garrett, you and I, we need to make a correction. What is our correction? Brooks Jones has played football for more than one year. Oh, this is true. I did not know that. A, a listener of the show very respectfully reached out, corrected me. We need to correct ourselves. Uh, and that's what, that's what this is all about. Hold us accountable if we're wrong. Uh, Brooks, this was his first year playing defensive end, but he has played football, was a wide receiver in the past at a different high school, not ALA. Um, but he's played football for a couple of years, a few years, more than, more than a couple of years. More this than was a, his first, this was his first year playing defensive end. And so. um, thank you for that. Adding that correction. One note that I, or one thought that I had is too, is we need to, in this kind of ties back also to the, my area, another area of grievances I have is that anybody who's coached anywhere that has a tie to BYU needs to be considered for a BYU job. Sorry, Vic Soto, right? Like it's, you know, and it's the, and we say this thing of like Vic Soto or people like, oh, I'd love to get Kelly Papinga back as our DC. I have no idea what from his time at Virginia would screams, oh yes, he should, he would be better than Elisa Tuiaki, right? Like it's, we, for some reason we latch onto names, but then people, I've seen people say like, oh, well, Vic Soto is a good recruiter. So my grievance is that there is a difference between evaluating and recruiting. Mm. So evaluating is obviously finding and assessing who will turn into a good player. Recruiting is actually selling and closing that person. Both of those things combined make you, you know, great in terms of roster building, if you want to call it that. But being a good evaluator alone doesn't make you a good recruiter. And being a good recruiter doesn't make you a great roster builder because you could have really crappy valuations. But mm -hmm. even then, if you look at, say, let's take Vic Soto for, as an example, or we could even take Eric Mateos and Jeff Grimes at BYU. Who did we, who, what D lineman, I guess, what is the lift? Like a good recruiter is somebody who provides a lift from the baseline for your program. Which D lineman did Vic Soto go out and get to USC that USC would have no chance in hell of getting otherwise. And flip side for BYU, which lineman signed in the last three years would anybody would have gone somewhere else. And we pulled, we legitimately pulled them out of a hat. And if it wasn't for Ryan Pugh or Jeff Grimes or Eric Mateos or Daryl Funk, that they would not have like, there's no way in hell that that player would have ended up at BYU, right? There's not, I mean, it's the offensive line recruiting has pretty much been on autopilot because there's a lot of really good LDS offensive line prospects. And so it's pretty easy in BYU should never have a problem fielding a bad, a good above average offensive line unit as a result of that. 
right? But the, you know, like the Connor Pays of the world, right? Like he's coming to BYU no matter what. Like you and I could have been the offensive line coach and said, hey, let's go. And you're like, okay. This right? is, I mean, there, there's this like, is fascinating because you're right, right? Like there's a difference between, uh, how do I say this? I think that BYU prior to Mike Empey, there were bad recruiters. Right. It's a fascinating way to uh, keep going. I interrupted you, but so, you've, got yeah, my, it, you've got my synapses going now. Right. So it's, there were bad recruiters there who were missing on the kids who very easily could have come to BYU, but I cannot think of a, I will like, say, okay, I, if we want to talk about recruiting, like, like a Tyson Williams. Okay. That is a huge recruiting win. No ties to the program. Like he has not like no ties to the program, not from out West. He has, you know, we went out and just went up against a bunch of other schools and pitched him and said, Hey, come to Provo. And he came or look at other guys in the portal basketball, right? Like Alex Barcelo, Seneca Knight, T John Lucas, guys that could have gone to other places that had zero ties to Provo. And we went on and said, Hey, come here. Right. But it's like, okay, but the offensive line, like, you know, what, what did, is Vic Soto do to raise the level of talent at USC above its baseline that it would have been because it's USC. Yeah. I mean, he landed the like number one overall, I can't even remember his name anymore, but the number one overall defensive lineman two years but ago, the USC. last six coaches, D line coaches, but that's maybe USC. 12 has yeah. the, the last dozen yeah. defensive line coaches USC has had have all done the same thing. I think right? you're exactly right. So I, this is, so fast. it's really hard for me to parse and it's the more they think about this, and we've talked about this a bunch the last little bit, and right, it's like coaches, so much is situational. Can you sell that specific program? How much it's like it is all a crapshoot, right? You just do not know when a coach is dropped into a new situation with new boosters, new assistants around them, like what is going to happen. And a lot of times, even too, it's like say, look at Coastal Carolina, for example, Jamie Chadwell, his name has been all ever, you know, everywhere for the last couple of years as an assistant to watch. What is he going to do when Grayson McCall leaves? Right. Like yeah. he is riding one quarterback. Can he identify, find, and develop a second quarterback? Or is this his flash in the pan? Right. And once your quarterback is gone, you're toast. It's fascinating. Now, I will say, Eric Mateos, Isaiah Tupoo probably doesn't come to BYU without Eric Mateos. So that's one out of George, George Miley does not go to Baylor without Eric Mateos. He would have come to BYU at Eric Mateos been at BYU. He would have gone to Utah had Eric Mateos been at Utah. So like Eric Mateos, great recruiter, Jeff Grimes, great recruiter, but you're right. But even then with Miley, so I will give you to Poe, but with Miley, he went like that relationship started because Grimes and Mateos were already at BYU and he was a local and, kid and who found Bingham. Yeah. That's yeah, true. If if they had never set foot back, if Eric Mateos never sets foot in the state of Utah, it's probably, it, it's between Utah, it's between Utah and US, it's between Utah and BYU for my life. I, I I yeah, I think you're right. Maybe 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 some others jump in, but I think you're right. Um, this is going to be one of the most fascinating things for BYU fans going forward. So. There's a bunch of players in the transfer portal. BYU, I think it's pretty clear. I think we've said it on this show. Uh, BYU wants a cornerback next year. They want to add another corner. Great. I think it's awesome. There's a lot of names that BYU is, is after. One of which, I mean, there's there's a lot. Nothing is, is close to being done. One of which is Chris Adimora. He, I think he's originally from California, transfer or signed with uh, Texas and entered the transfer portal in the last couple of weeks. BYU is is looking at, at Chris Adamora. He'd be great. He'd be phenomenal. Is it going to happen? I have no idea, but he'd be great. But when I reported that Chris Adamora was was the name that I'm paying attention to on on CSI and on 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 our Discord server, the first question that I got from like so many different people, well, what's the connection? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the new era of BYU sports of BYU football but BYU athletics the big 12 conference is good enough and competitive enough on a year in and year out basis that BYU has to recruit people that have no connection to the program they have to and that is called recruiting of there is a list 
of 5,000 people who are good. And you go and you find some, you sell the hell out of your program and you convince the three or four or 25 of those people that your program is where they should be. That is how every other recruit, like every other school does it. BYU is like this weird little anomaly, right? And, and everybody likes to say the honor code is this huge prohibitor for BYU. It is absolutely not. The honor code is the single best recruiting tool that BYU has. There is no reason that BYU should be able to knock on the door of all of these four and five star recruits. They shouldn't be able to get a Puka Nakua. They shouldn't be able to go out and, and, and be the number one preferred destination of Kingsley Suamataia. They should not be anywhere near that conversation. But because of the unique environment that BYU has, that unique environment that is is is, is founded and, and built upon the honor code, BYU has that weird little niche that they can get some of these guys. And that's awesome. But they either cannot miss on any of those guys ever, or they're going to have to break outside of that niche. And in order to do that, it's, it's old fashioned recruiting, man. It's selling the hell out of your program and convincing a guy like Chris Adamora, who's going to have no shortage of options available to him that, Hey, come to Provo. It's going to be so crazy to see, I, I hope, to see what you just said, the, the notion that there's got to be BYU connections that has to die. That has to die on the recruiting trail. That has to die when evaluating assistant coaches. That has to die everywhere. It has to. It, because it has to die everywhere, and it needs to die right away. And even if you look at the numbers, right, like it's, there are still plenty of kids that are religious that want a good environment, right? There is still some narrative around, you know, like the LDS church is a cult, like those kind of things that you have to overcome if you're going to go knock doors in the South, right? But there are still a lot of families that want their sons in good environments and daughters. And this goes, you know, this is across the entire athletic department that want their kids in a good environment. And are there school families that that's really not important to because they think that, well, my kid is my kid and they're going to do what they should anywhere they go and they don't really care. Yes, of there's course. plenty of those, but how many do you really need, right? Like if, if you say there's 20% of the families, I don't know what it is, right? If there's 20% of the families that, that you say that is important to, right, them and where they go, like when they, where they send their son off to school, and then you look at the truly religious schools that like have an honor code that affects like what you're doing on campus, off campus, whatever. If you look at FBS programs that are that level of like rules, like similar mm -hmm. to the honor code, what you got BYU, you have Liberty, which is much, much worse academically has a way, way, way stricter honor code and is in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have Baylor but they're not as strict like Notre Dame, I think has an honor code, but it's not, you know, it's not the same. It's kind of like, you can be as Catholic as you want to be, but if you don't want to be Catholic, then, you know, that's fine. And, and, the, and nothing against that. Like, I'm not, you know, it just, it is what it is. So it's like, if you're saying places that will truly give like a, everything about this is a religious education. There's like, you're competing with Liberty as the most religious school in all of FBS. And so if there's 10%, so that's what two out of 133, that's one and a half percent of FBS schools. And you're, so if it's what, 5%, 10%, like the numbers can still be in your favor to go find those kids, but you have to get the 5,000 person list and just start cranking through it and find and, the people who will listen and go hard and go hard because and, you have to seek those people out. And, and that's where the, the, the resources that we always talk about, that's where that comes into play is find the recruiting staff, find the, the, the analysts who can just comb through hundreds and thousands of hours of huddle film. I am not a coach. I am not employed by BYU. And I, I just got a, a message from, a, I actually just got two, while we're sitting here recruiting. And this happens every, or while we're sitting here recruiting, while we're sitting here recording. This happens every single day to me. That because I'm affiliated with BYU's 24-7 site, I get 
so many kids sending me huddle links. Uh, a kid out of Rigby High School. I don't know him. I don't think he's a D1 prospect, but he just sent me his link with a little bio. Hey, my name is blah, blah, blah. This is the position I play. This is my weight. This is my height. I recently transferred to Rigby High School. I, this is what I run. This is what I bench. These are to me. And if I go through in the last week, I can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And those are the ones that I haven't looked at. Those are just the ones that I ignore. It happens. You need resources to, to, to filter through that stuff. But even beyond those religious kids that are a fit, you got to go and find kids that and convince them that they are a, a fit, right? Look at Jackson State. Now, is, is Coach Prime, is he out there committing some recruiting violations? Time will tell. That, oh, that, yes. yes. <laughs> there might be some violations there. But even without like the top 10 kids like the, that he's bringing in, the Travis Hunters, he was bringing in high three stars. Like he's bringing in guys who had options. He is recruiting without question at the highest level an HBCU has ever seen. And that's if you take away the ones that well, are like, whoa. High, highest level since integration. There were a lot of damn good football players. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. In the modern era of yeah. college football. Uh, what is he doing, right? Like he's finding guys that he thinks are good and he's selling the hell out of that program. And there are red flag, not red flags, but there are things that have to be addressed. They don't have the resources. They don't have the fanfare. They don't get to play in the college football playoff. They don't have, they don't have, they don't have, right? All of that stuff has to be addressed. And he's just addressing it. He's doing it. He's doing a damn good job of it. That's what BYU's got to do. And then we're seeing it, right? Like with the Cormani McLean, there's no reason. And now is there a connection? Yeah. Uh, his friend knows somebody in Provo and made a phone call, but that's not, that's not a connection. That's just, that's just a that tip. happens everywhere. Yeah. That's just a tip. That is no different than the 20 people in my DMS this week that have sent me film that just happened to be, they looked at the right film, right? And they're just selling their program that, Hey, Cormani, we think you can do really well. That's going to be the new era of BYU football. It has to be because that's what everybody in the conference is doing. Wyoming in the Mountain West days, Wyoming can't do that. Wyoming can't go and just recruit and, and land enough really talented players that Wyoming is going to be this consistent threat. Neither could New Mexico, neither could Colorado State, neither could any of the other schools in the Mountain West Conference. So BYU's weird little niche that we talked about already that gave them a recruiting advantage over everybody else because BYU, even though they were playing Wyoming and New Mexico and Colorado state, BYU could go in and knock on a four-star five-star guy like Ben Olson who had offers from everybody in the world and get him to come to BYU get him to play in, in Laramie and in, in Albuquerque. Right. Because of what BYU had going forward, that weird little recruiting niche that BYU has that, that raises the floor of their recruiting classes is not going to be enough to win consistently. Some classes will be great, but it's not going to be enough to win consistently. BYU has to just get out of the mindset that there's got to be a BYU connection and they got to go and recruit. And they've also got to recruit assistants who are great. They've got to recruit everything. It's going to be so fun to see the new era of BYU football. But if fans, the thermostat of the program, if they don't adjust and they just, constantly are trying to find the guys with the BYU ties. It's going to be a, it's going to be a steep learning curve. What other grievances? I feel like we've kind of got off. Like these are all just one big grievance. I've got a grievance. I, I, I have one and that I'm ready is for yours. Bulls are overrated and fans put too much stock. And yes, bowls. it is not 1980 anymore. Okay. If, in 1980, back when you only played 11 games in a regular season, and you still maybe had eight or nine conference. You had one to two out of conference games, and there was a limited number of bowls. So if you went to a bowl game and got a win, that meant that you probably were playing against a good, especially if you're BYU. It's like you're coming from the little old whack. You're playing a game against maybe a top 25 team. Like it is your only chance to make a statement, which most of the time we never did, right? The now 
everyone plays the bowl. They made up a new bowl because there were more bowl eligible teams than there were bowls. And so they said, okay, we'll throw another game together. Everyone who's six and six, you get to go to a bowl. There's like 43 bowls now or whatever. And, you know, people like, oh, well, we had to play a bowl before Christmas. That doesn't matter anymore. Like the pre-Christmas, post-Christmas, like it doesn't matter. That's not a thing. The players prefer to play before Christmas because they'd rather spend Christmas with their family than be playing a game on December 26th or 27th and have to be practicing on Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. And the idea, like a bowl win of, I think a bowl win does nothing for you, but I think a bowl loss can propel you into a better year the next year because it leaves a sour taste in your mouth the whole off season. But like winning a bowl game that you're expected to win is just kind of like, Hey, yeah. Like pat yourself on the back. Like it's fine. It doesn't ever like throw you into something else. Right. And, but for example, when I was talking about this with uh, our friend, Jared, I don't remember his last name He's at Jared UTSA. We interviewed, we talked to him last year um, before the UTSA game. So they lost to UTSA lost to San Diego state. They finished the season 12 and two and won their conference. They won 12 games in the season. That's incredible. BYU's done that what, twice? And they, incredible, incredible year. And the, a lot of their fans were mad because like they lost their bowl game. And I was just talking to him. I was like, dude, look, you guys played Indiana and Memphis earlier this year. If you swapped that San Diego State loss with losing to Memphis, you know, Memphis and San Diego State, pretty similar programs in stature, right? If you say, oh, well, we lost to San Diego State in week two or week three, and then won 11 straight games or whatever to finish 12 and two. Everyone is like, this is the greatest season ever, but it's like, don't let this single game at the tail end affect how you look at the entire season, right? Like if, what if we had dropped the ASU game, but then beat UAB? Why would that like, it? you know, you'd be more mad, right? It's like, you would, you know, it's if we had finished 10 and three, but we had lost week three to ASU and won against UAB. Why would that change? Like that shouldn't change how you feel about the entire season. Right. And it's so to hyper focus on a bowl game and the result of a bowl game is stupid. And I do not understand it. I have two thoughts. One bowl results, unless it's the college football playoff should not be, should not count for coaches as a, a win or a loss. Especially BYU, now with how many players are opting out and like we got yeah, it's a joke. canceled, like BYU went transfers. And, BYU went 10 and two this year. That's the way it should be done. BYU went 10 and one last year. Bowl results, unless it's the playoff, should not count towards anybody's record. That's hot take number one. Hot take number two, if I was the president of the NCAA and I had the opportunity to present this to the rules committee. I get that the money, like for money reasons, nobody's ever going to say yes. Enable a 13th regular season game that can be scheduled and eliminate all bowls. I will sign that contract today. So you just want to say one more out of conference game at the beginning in the year. And then you if unless expand to the 12 team playoff and so it's like you get if you are one of those 12 teams you get to keep playing everybody yep. else like bowl season is done that's it i could see that um the one thing that i did see i think mac brown a couple years ago when he went back to north carolina mentioned it because someone asked him about a bowl and some people were saying like you know they should have turned it down or whatever and he said or someone asked about there being too many bowl games and he was like for a lot of my players this is the only time they've ever gotten anything or been with anybody that cares about them on christmas so i believe that so that is like i could i'm okay with it like but i almost like would say get rid of the bowls but like get rid of the contracts and just say like make it a free for all. Like you still have the gap, but it's just like a 13. It's a 13th regular season game, but it's a gap and the teams get to schedule. Like you give teams bartering for things and bowls, like putting bids on trying to get the payout, like still have all the payouts, but like, I want the chaos of scheduling. I think it's cool. Right. Like I want the chaos of scheduling period, but not like, of it's, it's that, like, who is it going to be? Like I want it's that random. coastal that coastal byu randomness yes. right I like that, that was cool or That's, i think that'd be fun 
that's probably too radical. I actually think mine is a realistic thing. Get rid of bowl season, add a 13th game, and with NIL and all that stuff that's already changing, uh, players are getting stuff that they've never got before. Anyways, right. the uh, I wonder though, because obviously the schools get a lot of money from the Bulls. And the Bulls oh yeah, over money, money. So for that, money reason, think, it's never going to happen. It, so I think it's equally as radical. So if we're going to keep the Bulls, like okay. keep them the same, but I want Vegas to schedule all of the Bulls. Ooh. And I wrote about this. I didn't put it on CSI because it didn't really fit there, but it was a couple of years ago. I should rerun it for this season. But basically I went through and calculated like what is the, the closest I want the bowl season where we can get as close to every game being near Pickham as possible. That'd like just fun. give me – like I don't want these bowl games just like, oh, so-and-so is a 14-and-a-half point favorite. No, like every single bowl game should be less than a touchdown difference. That would be fun. That would be a lot of fun, actually. It would be very, very fun. Bulls are dumb. Bulls are just, bulls are dumb. The only bulls that matter are the playoff. And and I'll say, I mean, the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl's got that cachet for it's, whatever it's reason. It's losing it, its cachet, though. Like, it's... um, I think it probably is nationally. Well, let me say it like this. Because it's now part of the playoff rotation... If it's not, it's a consolation prize unless it's the second best Big Ten team. Right. Well, and so, well, even then, okay, well, you got even Ohio, this year is Ohio a, a State players are dropping or opting out because they like, they do not care about playing in the Rose Bowl. It does yeah. not have the same. And you can say, like, oh, you know, fans may still care about it, but the players are leading, like, the players are going to start opting I, out. The fans will start as soon as the players start showing that they do not care about it. Okay. The fans are going to stop caring about it, even are going to care less, even less about it. And it's they. Well, they, it's like Pitt, right? Like, do you think Pitt Pitt fans are jonesed about playing in the Fiesta Bowl without Kenny Pickett? You know, or no, or Michigan State fans without Kenneth Walker? Yeah, they don't care. No, I I think you're right. So let me say it like this: then the Rose Bowl still matters. And it still has the cachet, but you're right. I think it's dwindling to the first time schools that have been there. Not the first time. I won't even say the first or time. The rarely it going to oh. the non playoff contenders. Yes. I don't care if Iowa goes 13 and 0. The committee, I've seen enough from this committee that they will go out of their way to not put Iowa in the playoff unless it like, a comedy of things going wrong in college football. Like we saw this year with Cincinnati, with Cincinnati, they will go out of their way to keep a team like even Iowa, a big 10 team. They will, they will try to keep them out of the playoff. I, I, it will be the blue bloods who go to the playoff barring absolute chaos. Like there was this year. So if you're Michigan and Ohio state, you don't give one shit about the, the Rose bowl. And we're seeing that this year. Ohio State does not care. If you're Iowa, you're always going to be pumped for the Rose Bowl. If you're USC, you don't give one damn about the Rose Bowl because you really believe that you should be in the playoff every year. But if you're Utah, if you're Arizona State, you care a lot about that Rose Bowl. And I think that it's that mindset that is going to ultimately kill the Bulls because we are playoff or bust for better or worse now and eventually if the playoff does expand that's when the rose bowl doesn't matter but as long as there's only four and realistically we're looking at 10 teams every year who have a shot and six of them are in the south i i think the rose bowl will matter because of its cachet but i don't think the fiesta bowl has that i i do wonder if uh if 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 Pittsburgh was playing not in the Fiesta Bowl, but playing in the Orange Bowl, would Pickett well, have opted Pitt, out? Pitt's playing in the Peach Bowl. Well, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. If they uh, were playing in the ACC match, like the, the, the Orange Bowls where they used to go. Right. For the playoff killed everything, right? Right. If they were playing in the Orange Bowl that was part of the ACC forever, would they care more? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I just realized my video has been off this whole time. You haven't well, even fine. seen me. That's Here fine. I am. Here I am in all my glory. Uh, 
I don't, I don't know the maybe, answers. Well, because the matchup would have been Orange Bowl is like who plays the opposite in the Orange Bowl. It's either the, I think it's like an at large. If they don't have like it's not a set thing. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. And it used to be, didn't it? Used to be the Big Ten. Um, do, do, do. let me see. The Maybe Orange not. Bowl. Maybe it was the national championship that I'm all I can remember is Ohio State, Michigan, not Ohio State, Michigan, Ohio State, Miami. Um, to, to see, it is conference tie ins. The ACC locked into a 12 year deal. Um, the next, let's see, for secondary tie ins, the Southeastern Conference and the Big Ten Conference are guaranteed three appearances each over 12 years. And the University of Notre Dame can play a maximum of two games, but is not guaranteed any appearances. Interesting. So yeah. Anyway, AC, so it's either the AC, the Big Ten, or the SEC. So there you go. I mean, if you want to talk about, uh, like which two conferences are really running the show, mm-hmm. the Pac-12 has the Orange Rose Bowl. The SEC has, you know, the Big Ten also has the Rose Bowl. The SEC has the Sugar Bowl. The Big Twelve has the Sugar Bowl. But then you also have the SEC and the Big Ten also get another half a bowl because they split it half the time. Yeah. Right. Like it's so it's a rotate, their opponent rotates, but it is uh that the who here you go. Okay. If the Big Ten pulled out of the Rose Bowl, would the Rose Bowl lose all of its cachet? Yes. If if it was replaced with the Big 12. Yes. Yeah, without question, right? Yes, because USC doesn't care, and they are like USC has won more Rose Bowls than UCLA has been to total bowl games, I believe, or it's close. It may that was a thing like ten years ago, so it it may have flipped now, but it, it it's close. Wow. So so yeah, it's and USC is going to always be disappointed with the Rose Bowl because that means that they fell short. So interesting, close. and so. They like they expect to be a title contender, not a Rose Bowl contender. Your and, prevailing point, though, bulls are overrated and they suck. I agree. That is a grievance. My next grievance, I watched a lot of the BYU game last night. I watched it side by side with the Jazz game that was going at the same time. College basketball is unwatchable. It's not just basketball. Basketball's good. Basketball's fun. It's not football, and I'd prefer baseball, but basketball is fun. College basketball is so hard to watch, and it isn't because of the quality, right? Like, I know that people think that. It is. Well, it's the refs. It's the, the, the rules, you know, not having continuation. Like, that's the stupidest thing in the world, that Alex Barcelo is going up for a, a layup, and he gets fouled just before he takes off in the air and it's on the ground. That's the dumbest thing in the world. The NBA, like, while I don't love the NBA because of the players or because of what it's become, the, the beauty of the NBA is awesome. The way that the NBA allows players to move. And when the contact does happen, the contact is, is allowed. Like that's, fun to watch college basketball is unwatchable and it is not because of the quality it's because of the rule and i also don't like the halves get rid of the halves so that you don't have so many damn free throws get the quarters like the the women's game has figured that out i don't know why the men can't figure that out college basketball refs are awful and it makes the product really 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 hard to watch if you are not a gambler or a fan of a team, nobody is watching college basketball. This is true. Nobody. If you are not a BYU fan and you don't have a vested financial interest because of a casino, you are not watching BYU play basketball ever. doesn't matter who they're playing. If you are not, and that goes, that's not just BYU. Go all the way up to Gonzaga. They're the best team in the country or Duke or whoever, UCLA. Top five teams in the country. If you're not a UCLA fan, you are not watching UCLA play basketball. You're not. Or a gambler, right? But football, if Alabama is playing football, I'm not an Alabama fan, but I'm going to turn on an Alabama game whenever, whenever it's on. You know, unless my team is playing, 
I, I almost prioritize Alabama games because they're so damn fun to watch. I love that SEC game of the week. That's, that's the problem. College basketball doesn't have that. It isn't fun. It just isn't fun. March Madness is fun, but March Madness is only fun because we all sort of have a gambling vested interest in it. Whether you are playing for a prize in your office that the best bracket wins a extra lunch worth of PTO, or you are gambling and winning tens of thousands of dollars, it's the bracket that makes March Madness fun. The games themselves. Unless it happens to be an upset, right? Like you, are you just short? Like I want the upset watch and I'm flipping to the 15 and the two seat. Like I don't care about. And even that you're not watching the first half. You're only watching the last five minutes of that because you want to see the celebration afterwards. You're not watching the game. I remember that you, UMCB, whatever they were, the 16 that beat Virginia. I was in a Wendover casino when that game happened. I had money on Virginia. I lost money, but I had the money interest in that game, right? I was there in a casino watching the biggest upset that the NCAA tournament has ever seen. And I watched so many other games until the last five minutes of that, that upset, because I didn't care. Hell, I was more interested in the UMCB Twitter account that was just roasting Virginia the entire time. That was fun. I didn't care at all about the game. College basketball is an unwatchable product without question. I agree. And I mean, I do not watch college basketball outside of BYU because you just can't. Because it's ridiculous. It's insufferable. Jeff, this has gone longer than we originally expected. I think you kind of worked through it. Your voice is sounding better now than it did at the beginning of the show a little bit. Either that or I'm just used to it by now. And I've become accustomed to it. But it is our, we have aired our grievances. It was our Festivus. And it was also, it is Christmas Eve. Uh, we are giving, this is, you know, Santa leaving this gift unto you. Um, but what do you, do you have any, uh, I guess, what are, what are your, th- what are your Christmas thoughts or words of wisdom that you want to share with our, you know what, I actually, our listeners as I we, actually have some. Okay, let's hear it. I learned this last, two years ago, two years ago, weather prevented me from going anywhere on Christmas day. So I stayed home with my family, just with my direct family. And I know that Christmas provides an opportunity to go see loved ones and all that, all that stuff. And I get it. I understand it. I think it's awesome. The best Christmases that I've ever had in my life, because I've always been a, we go to grandma's house on Christmas day. Two years ago, because of snow, I stayed home with my wife and kids. That was without question, the best Christmas that I've ever had. So last year we did the same thing. We said, we will travel on Christmas Eve. We will travel after Christmas. We will travel the week before. We'll go to all the parties in the world. But on Christmas Day, you know, the morning you're opening Santa's presents, we are going to open our presents and we are going to stay home for Christmas. Last year's Christmas got better than the one the year before. So here is my sage Christmas wisdom. Stay home with your family on Christmas Day. Obviously, not everybody can do that, right? But if you have to travel, travel the week before. Travel in June. Travel in January. But that Christmas Day, stay home with your family. We've loved it every second of it. I don't think my my parents have loved it as much. But we see them on Christmas Eve. So what's the difference between seeing somebody on the 24th or the 25th? Yeah, I think you can do the make the nice dinner on Christmas Eve. You go to bed, Santa comes to your house, and then your Christmas morning is with your immediate family. And if grandma grandma wants to grandpa want to swing by and say hi, they can travel around from kid to kid. Yes. And that's that that is maybe it, right? (laughs) Get in the car, Randy and Mrs. Randy. (laughs) Don't don't prioritize spending time with cousins on Christmas day. Now, if grandma and grandpa want to come and see grandkids and kids, that's great. And now obviously this doesn't, again, it doesn't apply for everybody, but that's what we did. And you know what else we did for our, our, our Christmas dinner? We just went and got Chinese takeout because the Chinese restaurants aren't celebrating Christmas. 
And it was such a phenomenal Christmas tradition. Go get some Chinese food. Go get some good pastrami at a Jewish deli. You got yeah, options on Christmas. There's options. There we go. That's my wisdom. What is your wisdom? Um, my wisdom is, you know, just what uh, actually, I mean, similar to our Wednesday, in the vein of our Wednesday newsletter, uh, Derek Miles, he, he posted on the Discord this morning that he had to stop at the grocery store, forgot something. I, mean, I have to run to the store to try to find something. Uh, we're doing steak. I decided, well, here's my wisdom. You don't mm. need to do traditional meals, right? Like we talked about it and we're just getting together with my in-laws for dinner tonight or tomorrow. Same thing, you know, small, keeping it small. And I was like, I don't really like ham. Like ham is fine. You know, Easter ham, whatever. It's fine. I will eat it if it's there, but I've never itching back. Oh yeah. I need me some glazed spiral cut ham. Right. I like love, no one has. I love ham. And, and it's just fine. And everyone else was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's just like we eat it at Christmas and Easter or same thing with Turkey. Like I do love Turkey. Turkey is better than ham. If like Turkey done well, but at the same time, I was like, we're not cooking. I don't need a 20 pound Turkey when there's like six adults. Yeah. So, you know, let's just get a, so we bought prime steaks and we're having steak for Christmas dinner instead. But anyway, so I got to go look. Cause when I went to the store yesterday, they were out of, uh rosemary and i i need some fresh herbs for my steak because it's like mm-hmm. we're doing it got to do it big and do it right for baby jesus but mm-hmm. uh so i got to run to the store and you know derek posts about this i also took pork chop to get a haircut this morning and i left a very large tip because the lady was working on christmas eve so derek said that he had to run to smith's this morning and he thought about wednesday's newsletter and he bought a gift card uh, when he was waiting in line you know they have the, the gift cards at the checkout he just bought a gift card. Don't know. He didn't say how much. Um, and when after he paid for it, he just he gave it to the cashier. So my Christmas thing is just like you know, find somebody random. Like if you have to go out today, like give someone like you're making someone's life worse. Like it is you call it selfish, whatever. Right. Like it's you can pay a little extra, be a little nicer, you know, try to spread some holiday cheer. And, you know, it's it makes working on Christmas Eve a lot less sucky. If everybody who goes through the line gives you 10 extra bucks because they feel bad for, that you have to, for making you work on Christmas Eve, because it's not Walmart's fault that they're making people work on Christmas Eve. It's our fault, right? Like it's if none of us went to the store on Christmas Eve and it was a ghost town, they would shut it because it would not be worth it to pay the employees. But we I am working on Christmas Eve and it's the government's fault. Well, everything is their government's fault. So, <laughs> yes, whatever. But so that is, you know, if you're going to go out today, you, you have to, you have to find ways to get creative with this though, at the grocery store, as a former grocery clerk, they don't, most places, Winco, Albertson, Smith's, they don't allow you to take tips anymore. That's why, which is the dumbest, the dumbest policy in the world, but they don't allow you to take tips. So get creative with it. A gift card is good. Yeah. A gift card is good. It could be in the same store. And lastly, I will leave you. Do you know the story? Or I guess, what is your favorite hymn? Your Christmas song? I don't. You, do you have a favorite Christmas song? Oh, you're very anti-Christmas music. I mean, I listen to it. I like it, but I don't really have a favorite. I did listen to Dude Perfect's uh, Rudolph's Got COVID. And it was it made me oh, laugh. This year. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that. Because I was going more serious, but... My last part of advice, if you go read the history, my favorite Christmas song, well, Oh Holy Night is not in the hymn book. Mm. So the best one that's in the hymn book is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And if you just go read, take some time, five minutes to go read the story behind that hymn and where it came from. And it will make your Christmas a little brighter. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was very depressed and he woke up on Christmas Day because he heard the bells and he was like, there's nothing. This is stupid. Like I hate it. My life sucks because his wife and his son had both died mm. recently. And then by the end of the songs ringing, he, you know, then like they got louder and kind of their crescendo. And he was like, Hey, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. So my last Christmas thought with you is that everything will be okay. The bells will ring more loud and deep. God is not dead. Nor doth he weep. The wrong shall fail. The right shall prevail and give him hell. Goodwill to men. Well, well done. Well so, done. Jeff, until next week, this will probably be our 
Is this gonna be our last one? Of the no, year? We'll, we'll we'll get. Are one we gonna more. do on a New Year's Eve? Or are we gonna go on January first? Well, I do. Well, January first would be a Saturday. Oh yeah, that's true. It is a weird day, remember? Yeah. Uh, and I will be working on New Year's Eve again because of the government. So. Aye, aye, aye. The banks can't be closed for four consecutive days. That's the rule. That's stupid. It is stupid, especially in today's world where banks are always open with your app. Yeah. And if you're a bank that doesn't have an app somehow, then you should really just be shutting your doors down anyway. Yeah, that's really dumb. It is. Um, so enjoy the rest of your work day i'm gonna go to walmart and try to find some rosemary and also we realized this morning we forgot stocking stuffers so ah. who knows what my kids are going to be getting from santa claus but good luck until next week jeff give, give them, them hell, hell.